you, Nathan, and thank you, Kevin, for the kind introduction. It's so easy to hide behind this pulpit. Um, I hope you're enjoying the books all. Uh, Jonathan always does wonderful uh, selections of books for conferences. I'm thankful for his ministry, and I'm glad that you're being able to profit from that today. Uh, during this time together, uh, we're going to think about yet another characteristic of a sound church, and that is a culture of trying to raise up uh, new elders and leaders, a, a culture really of discipling. Uh, when Kevin and I were thinking through this series and the four different slots, the four opportunities I would have to address a healthy church, this is one of the topics that I or that we thought would be useful for us to consider together. Um, as a pastor, this is always in the front of my mind. Uh, when I'm thinking about a church, a congregation, I'm not just thinking about what I'm seeing right now, but I'm thinking about what will likely be here, should the Lord tarry, five years from now and 10 years from now. Are we doing the kind of things that will perpetuate the gospel witness, the faithful witness of this congregation? And one of the chief things of those is trying to see new elders raised up. One way that I've characterized churches before is either green dot churches or red dot churches, by which I mean green, net exporter of Christian preaching and teaching, red, net importer. That is, are we the kind of church when our pastor is not there who has to bring somebody in from elsewhere, or are we the kind of church who, by God's grace, is seeing more preachers raised up than we ourselves can really use? I think since Jesus gave the Great Commission, the way Christianity has expanded, very simply put, is by local churches raising up more preachers than they need. So one of the things you want to see, and by God's grace, I think you do see here at Christ's Covenant, is again and again, the Lord bringing men here, raising them up as preachers and teachers, and sending them out uh, to supply pulpits and ultimately to plant new congregations both in this nation and around the world. I think every church wants to have that germ of spiritual health and reproduction in it. If you think of sort of five topics, discipling, that is helping somebody else follow Christ, evangelism, raising up new leaders, church planting, and missions. Those may seem like five very separate topics, but I think they're actually very much related. I think they all are about how we as individuals are used by God to help other individuals grow in Christ, come to Christ, be raised up as leaders in the church, start new churches here or elsewhere. And I think those are the things that we're really considering that we have in view when we're thinking of this topic of raising up leaders and discipling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, when he says to the Corinthians, when he's speaking to them about their, their life together, he says in chapter 2 verse 4, uh, chapter 4 verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We want to see God glorified, and one way God is glorified is by more and more people coming to know his grace, because that increases thanksgiving. Well, that's what we want to see. That's what we as pastors work for. 
Uh, that's what the elders in your church are working for. That's what you, if you're a Sunday school teacher, are working for. If you're a small group leader, indeed, this is what every Christian should be working for in our relationships, in our families, with our friends, with those at church and in our neighborhood. <clears throat> I think particularly anyone who is going to uh, be the main preaching pastor at a church has to think beyond his local church. And that is, if Kevin's going to do a good job here at Christ's Covenant, he must think beyond Christ's Covenant. He must think, how is the gospel doing in Charlotte? Uh, how is the gospel doing across North Carolina, in, in, in this country, and around the world? Uh, by God's grace, in this little uh, three- or four-day excursion in North Carolina, I've had the joy of being in a Calvary Chapel church, uh, a Southern Baptist church, and now here in a PCA church. Uh, in our church in Washington meeting right now in the pastoral prayer, we will undoubtedly pray for other local gospel preaching churches. And we will deliberately pray not only for Baptist churches, but we'll pray for Anglican churches and Bible churches and Presbyterian churches and E-free churches and various congregations around the city that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we want to make it clear that we're not there fundamentally about our local brand, about our particular congregation. But our congregation is there for the Lord's work to encourage it in all the churches. When I'm standing at the back of the door afterwards in our church, uh, because we're on Capitol Hill, we tend to have a lot of visitors. And we have people who've moved to the area, they've heard of our church, so they come and visit. Almost always, after I find their name and what they're doing, almost always ask them, and where are you living? And if they say they're living out in the suburbs or near where I know there's another good church, I'll say, have you tried McLean Prez? You know, ha- have you been to Del Rey? Have you, have you tried Cherrydale Baptist or, or McLean Bible? I'll suggest a church near where they live. Because I think if they can attend a church near where they live, there's more chance they'll get deeply involved in that and contribute to that work. I think as a congregation, uh, you want to be committed to seeing God be glorified more and more. That means his grace being extended to more and more people. And that means more and more people being raised up to teach God's word, ultimately. Uh, Because uh, people comment sometimes on our internship program, or as Kevin did in the interview last night, uh, on uh, my record of trying to find people like Chad, the intern who's with me, and trying to pour into these young men and encourage them in their gospel work, uh, I get asked sometimes to speak on this topic. And the notes that I'm using right now are notes that I I first developed when uh, another church asked me to come and speak at a conference on how do I do this raising up of new leaders? And as I think about the topic of discipling, I thought for a Sunday school setting, it might be uh, useful to have a somewhat more casual address where I simply go over nine things uh, that I would tell you, nine simple things that I try to do looking back on my own practice uh, and that I think are biblical and I have found useful in ministry. And I hope in your own discipling ministry, uh, you will find useful as well. So nine simple things. Uh, Number one, I'll say uh, when I'm looking particularly for elders, is I want to see the qualifications uh, that we see in the New Testament. So qualifications. Uh, These qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are actually things that all Christians, men and women, are commanded to do, except the apt to teach and the not a recent convert. Uh, All of them are things that all of us are to do. So if you're looking for lists to pray for somebody that you're meeting with to study the Bible, fruit of the Spirit is a good one from Galatians, but so too are the qualifications. 
that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There's a background really in those from Exodus 18. If you look back at Exodus 18, uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro is noticing how worn out Moses seems. And he says in Exodus 18, verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Well, that's Moses being advised on who he should try to especially invest in for the sake of the people as a whole. So one of the things you want to do in your own ministry of discipling is try to find those people who will themselves turn and help other people. It's not wrong for you to look for natural gifts of leadership. Not because you are want to be exclusive, but because you actually want to help the most people you can. And if you find somebody who will themselves, you think, turn and love others well and teach the Bible well and lead others in studying Scripture, those are especially good ones for you to put your time into. Especially if you're a pastor or an elder. Uh, Noting those natural gifts of leadership isn't a wrong kind of favoritism that James tells us we shouldn't do as Christians. Uh, In James 2, James is condemning the favoritism of treating somebody well for something you might get out of it. Uh, Perhaps they're wealthy and you think that their wealth might help you in some way. Well, this is not that kind of favoritism. Uh, Kevin will do a better job for this church if he works specifically to try to raise up more godly elders. And that's a good long-term goal for his ministry in this church. And you want to look around for those people who are willing to love and serve others. That's why I think Paul tells Timothy that he who desires the work of an overseer, the office, who aspires to be an elder, he says he desires a noble task. You know, you could desire to be a Sunday school teacher or an elder for carnal, selfish reasons, but once you actually get into the work, there's not a lot there to be carnal or selfish about. You know, it really is service, and it's pretty unsung service. I mean, even when you're the senior pastor of a church, I was meeting with a group of elders recently, uh, a young, uh, some of them uh, were younger, and one of them was asking, what do you do with all the temptations to pride in the pastoral ministry? And I thought, yes, this is a young man asking me this question. And this is someone who's not yet served as a senior pastor. And I said, brother, I, I'm sure there are temptations to pride when you're the main preacher at a church, but let me just tell you from experience, you're the one people will get upset at the most. You're, you're the one people who complain to the most. You're the one people who will, will blame the most. When people say abusive things, it'll be aimed at you normally. So yes, are there temptations to pride? Probably. Uh, But my experience of it is you don't notice so much the thank you for the sermon. What you notice are the other comments that I won't repeat um, that, that come your way when you're in leadership. So if you don't have a desire to serve others by teaching them God's word and to see them made into the image of Christ, you probably won't make it through the trials that are a necessary part, even of being a Sunday school teacher uh, or an elder, uh, let alone the main preacher in a congregation. Anyway, all of that is ramblings under this number one, qualifications. Number two, look. Look. I would encourage you, if you want to see the Christians multiply where you are, look. 
Look around at who God is raising up among you. That's again, back to Jethro and Moses in Exodus 18. That's exactly what Jethro told Moses to do. In, uh, in Exodus 18, verse 21, he says, look for able men from all the people who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So there is this activity that Moses is to begin with, which is looking, which presumes that you simply are not creating leaders. You're simply looking around at what the Lord is doing. So even, Kevin, when you asked me the question last night about a legacy of, I don't remember the verb you used, but of you know, raising up hundreds of leaders or something, as, as the guy in that position, it doesn't look like that at all for me. So, so Chad, Chad, stand up for a second. Chad Pritchard, ladies and gentlemen, he's been a missionary in uh, India and Jordan and is now with us for an internship program that lasts five months. So we could, in some sense, uh, in, in years to come, if the Lord tarries and gives Chad life, refer to Chad as one of the men that I have raised up as a leader. Well, I, Chad and I lived in the same place for five months, and he was a part of a group that I taught regularly. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I, I learned things from Chad as well. He's accompanied me on this trip. Uh, he's already done great work for the Lord before I've ever met him. So the, the way the Lord uses us is as, not as people who, who uh, actually initiate ministry, now, I guess we do most when we evangelize. So when we're the ones who the Lord uses to bring somebody to himself, that would be the closest we get to that. But generally, the way the Lord's going to use you in your Bible study or with the people that you're trying to disciple and see raised up as teachers of the word, you're going to be one in a long line of people the Lord uses. And that's great. That, that's not a bad thing at all. You know, so Kevin can be a wonderful minister, but he doesn't have to be the only one who ever influences you spiritually. He can be one of of 15 unusually great gifts the Lord has given to you to grow your own understanding of God and his word. All this to say in the second one, look, we have to know fundamentally that it's God who establishes his church. It's God who gives gifts of pastors and teachers to his church. And insofar as we have a role in seeing people raised up into that, we're really looking at work God is himself doing. And we are trying to recognize that work and to encourage that work. We're not really quite initiating that work. I hope that makes sense to you. In that sense, we are opportunistic. We need to have a deep confidence that God is doing this work as his gospel goes forward. Practically, what that means for me as a pastor, I need to not give my sermon and then go play golf. You know, nothing against golf. Um, I need to give my sermon, and then I need to hang around the congregation. I need to observe what's happening in the church. Uh, That's one of the reasons I'll stand at the door at the back usually for half an hour after one of our services uh, because there are some kind of people who come to you immediately, you know, and they're, yeah. And then there's another kind of person who'll come to you in a couple of minutes, they'll wait in a line. And then there's another kind of person who they're not gonna come talk to you until they see nobody's talking to you for a couple of minutes. Somebody needs to go talk to the poor preacher, he's all alone. You get a whole different kind of person coming speaking to you. Well, doing something like that is one of the ways that I get to know in a fairly large congregation, our congregation has hundreds of people in it. I'm not going to know all of them personally, but it helps me to be able to observe who's there and what the Lord is doing. Even a simple thing like a membership directory. So I always say, my Bible is my most important book, and my second most important book is my membership directory, which I always keep in my Bible. Uh, So I understand from Hebrews 13 
that I'm not going to give any special account for you folks. But for the members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Hebrews 13 tells me I will give an account to God for them. And so every morning in my quiet time, I'll try to pray through two pages of our membership directory so I get through the whole thing in a month. We encourage members of our church to do the same. And that's one way that I'm doing what Jethro encouraged Moses to do, looking around the congregation, always keeping the members of the congregation in mind even as I pray for them. Well, uh, that's number two. Look, number three, trust. An element in a good discipling ministry uh, will be trust. Uh, Being willing to believe the best. You think about the way Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, One aspect of it is being willing to believe the best about those you're interacting with. I think we need to advance trust like credit. Uh, So many times I've seen more conservative pastors be too careful about giving people opportunities to teach God's word. And my thought is, how are they ever gonna, how are they ever gonna get started? So I, as a pastor, am looking for opportunities where I can create ways in which people can teach God's word. We have women's Bible studies in which women are teaching other women. Uh, we have uh, small groups. We have core seminar classes, our Sunday school classes uh, for, for youth and for adults. And in one core seminar class, might run, run 13 weeks or 26 weeks, we'll have a lead teacher and we'll have a couple of other teachers. Well, if we have like six different tracks and we have like three or four classes over the year, and each of those classes is going to have three people involved as teaching, that's going to be like 80 teaching slots through the year right there. I, I want to see things like that created in order to be able to give people chances to teach God's Word and as they teach it for others to see that they can profit from it and so then be encouraged. Part of that means I need to be willing to encourage people to say, ah, let's listen. Let's see how this brother does. Uh, let's try to encourage him. Uh, I've seen men who uh, in the 1990s began to teach for us. They didn't do that good a job. And yet I thought, ah, I think I see something in there. And by uh, five or 10 years later, they'd be one of the best teachers in the congregation. We just give them more and more opportunities. They had a desire to do it. Their theology was good. And they became more and more competent at it. That's just all under number three, trust. Number four, personal time. You need to be willing to give time to people personally. You look at the example of Jesus uh, with the disciples. In Mark chapter 3, when he calls the 12 to himself, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out. Uh, You go on through the Gospels, and you see Jesus' regular pattern of spending time uh, with the disciples. Paul evidently did the same thing. He writes to the Philippians and to the Corinthians, imitate me, Uh, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 13, uh, verse seven. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. How can you imitate their faith if you don't know about their lives? Uh, Brother or sister, if you want to influence others in the rising generation, you need to find ways for them to spend time with you, to see how you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's a basic way that we try to train up the next generation. Now with me, the way that happens is 
Very simple. Uh, I'm an extrovert, so it's not hard for me to spend time with people. If I'm going to go to the store, Connie, my wife, wants me to go get something, uh, I can say, hey, Chad, you have 20 minutes? You want to come with me to the store real quick? Call Tina, see if she needs anything. And then we talk on the way to the store, during the time there, on the way back. Or it might be having a lunch with somebody. Or a longer example of like, hey, I'm going to go to North Carolina for a few days. Chad, you want to come with me? And then we get the time to talk and listen to music and think together about all kinds of things. Uh, as we drive down I-95 and sit on I-95 and drive down I-95. <laughs> Try to develop that same instinct in them by helping them spend time with others. So in our internship program that we have at our church, one of the most important things is not just that there's one intern, but we have six or seven or eight at a time, and they spend time together, and we encourage them in that kind of camaraderie. Anyway, the, all, all of that is just an emphasis on personal time. It's not just learning what the Bible says on on the papers, but it's actually watching somebody else read and understand the scriptures and try to live consistently with it. Number five, very practically in terms of leadership, for me, a a key aspect of seeing new leaders raised up is to delegate, uh, being willing to delegate responsibility to others. Again, I think of Jethro and Moses. This is exactly what Jethro was telling Moses to do. In Exodus 18, verse 18 you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Uh, Friend, if you are an elder in this church or another church, uh, you might find that one of the things that you could do to help raise up more men to serve that role in the church is look at where you're feeling pressed. Those very areas where you're feeling particularly pressed may be areas where there are others who could step in and help. Uh, I think you have to be willing as the the pastor of a church to look for opportunities to delegate. So very practically, I'll tell you the way it works out in our church. So in our church, we're a Baptist church, we're a congregational church, and yet we do have a plural eldership, and the elders make a lot of the decisions practically. So I always say a Presbyterian and a Baptist church will look a lot alike as long as they're both healthy. When something goes wrong, then the polity differences show themselves. Well, when they're going well, just like your eldership leads this congregation here, so our eldership leads the congregation on Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill Baptist. Uh, We spend a lot of time chewing through, praying through, trying to understand issues, and then we lead the congregation in those ways. Part of what that means is I encourage uh, very honest and robust discussions on the eldership, and part of what that means is we have no culture of unanimity. We don't need to all agree. We just simply go for majority vote. And the reason I've deliberately led in establishing that kind of culture is I think it brings more honesty. And I like it when guys vote against me. Now, we're not voting on the deity of Christ. You know, we're, we're, we're voting on simple matters of judgment. And I don't assume my judgment, even though I'm the senior pastor, is unerring. I think my judgment is usually spectacularly good, but but I I can't quite say it's unerring. And so when we have an elder on the board, and they're new, and they vote a different way than I do on something, I'll generally, at a break, go thank them. Uh, Just thank them for their honesty, because that's why they're there. We saw God's work in them and in the ministry, uh, their ministry in the church, and we wanted them to be able to speak into the life of our church. So that's the kind of way that I, as a senior pastor, try to see new leaders raised up by delegating responsibility around me. 
to them, even in something like the votes of the eldership. More, more, in a more concentrated fashion, uh, for me, it's going to have to do with public teaching and preaching. Uh, because if I'm especially concentrated on raising up new preachers, that means I have to be willing to give away opportunities that I could take to teach the congregation in order to give them to others. And part of what I have to do is cultivate respect for those other leaders and teachers. So, for example, early on in my time there, uh, we had um, a young man who was working for a senator as a speechwriter, but he was very interested in the ministry. He was in his 20s, and he was increasingly taking on responsibilities at our, at the time, small, elderly, but growing church. And so I was figuring out ways to give Aaron chances to teach. So this one time, uh, we have a Bible study on Wednesday night, an inductive Bible study from 7 to 8. This one time, I had Aaron uh, asked him to teach the Bible study. So it was before the Bible study, and we were up front, and uh, Aaron's a little shorter than I am, and I'm large and playful. I understand it as playful. And uh, I was, I don't remember what I was saying to Aaron, but I was saying something, and maybe I, I may have patted him on the head or shoved him around a little bit. I don't remember. Something that to me was inoffensive. And uh, Aaron, with no anger, I think, grabs me by the elbows, takes me over to the side, kind of behind a wall, and just said to me, stop it. He said, Mark, I know you love me and respect me, or else you wouldn't give me this opportunity to teach the Bible study. But the congregation needs to see that. You need to help them respect me if you want me to be able to teach them Scripture. And as soon as he said it, I knew he was right. You know, as soon as he said it, of course, you know, I was being an idiot. I wasn't thinking about that. You know, so what we could do in our personal relationship was fine. It wasn't helping to convey what the congregation needed, which was an understanding that this is a man to be respected and carefully listened to. Now, as they get to know us better, then they can see us kidding around more. But when you're in a public gathering, uh, I need to work to do what I can to build respect. So, for example, uh, simple things. When, when Kevin gives an introduction to me, now Kevin and I are good friends. We could play around. We could do all kinds of things with that. But Kevin, as a good pastor, is trying to help you. If you have no idea who this Mark Deaver person is, you know, why this guy should be here and why you might want to give the next 45 minutes listening to him. So what Kevin is doing when he's giving an introduction is not joking around with me or he's not praising me. He's lovingly instructing the congregation so that the congregation will be able to listen well to teaching for the next 45 minutes. We always have to have an eye in mind to the effect of our words on others. If we're trying to delegate responsibility to new teachers or to younger teachers, we want to look for, respons- for opportunities uh, to raise them up. Uh, a sixth thing, feedback. Feedback. I was at the North Carolina Baptist Convention up in Greensboro uh, on Monday. And one of the things I said to the brothers there is, Listen, if you believe strongly in the inerrancy of the Bible, and you have even fought for that in denominational meetings, but you yourself don't build ways that you can hear critical feedback, I fear that you're a hypocrite. Unless you assume that you are as inerrant as the Bible, part of wisdom for you will be learning how you can receive correction. Uh, particularly if you're an elder, if you're in the ministry. How do you help people bring questions or even challenges to you? Uh, One of the things we try to do is build a feedback time. So we have a time each week where our 
pastoral staff and interns meet and we review the Sunday school classes, the morning service, and the evening service. We talk about every hymn, every prayer, and certainly the sermons. And what we're trying to do in that meeting is model four things. Model giving godly criticism and model giving godly encouragement and model receiving godly criticism and model receiving godly encouragement. And all four of those are somewhat separate abilities, uh, talents, uh, things you should work at. All of them are important. All of them contribute. Uh, We could go many places in Scripture to see the importance of these. On the idea of receiving, or or rather of giving godly criticism, uh, the Proverbs are full of wisdom for us on this. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. It's Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, that is being corrected, is stupid. It doesn't mean that whoever reproves you is always right. But if you're ever wrong, how will you hear about it if you always growl at everybody who tries to reprove you? One time when I was an undergrad at Duke up the road in Durham, I was uh, sitting there with a good friend from Florida, and uh, he was telling me something that was critical. I don't remember what it was. And I quickly explained, I just sort of interrupted him and just explained what was really going on. And after just a moment, Glenn looked at me and he just said, shut up. And I wasn't used to being told to shut up like that, especially from a good friend, so I I did shut up. And he looked at me and said, Mark, you think and talk very quickly. Let's say you're right 80% of the time. That 20% of the time you're wrong, how will you ever learn about it if you just start justifying something the moment you're corrected? He said, if you're going to learn anything, you've got to learn when you get criticism to be quiet, to listen to the criticism. They may not be right, and if they're not right, you don't have to do what they say but you must be a steward of the opportunity to weigh it up and think about it. That was excellent advice that's clearly stuck in my mind ever since. Model giving godly criticism. Uh, Let people honestly explore why you do things. Also, though, give godly encouragement. Godly encouragement is not flattery. Uh, As someone who is in the public eye somewhat, I, I, I do receive flattery, and flattery does feel very different than honest encouragement. Uh, Proverbs 29 talks to us about this as well. It says in verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That is, he works to trap him. The Greeks said that the opposite of a friend is not an enemy, it's a flatterer. Because, you know, the flattery confuses people. Uh, then all of a sudden you tell them sweet things they know they want to hear, even if they're not true, and it throws the judgment of even the wisest of people off. So no, we have to be very careful never to flatter, but we do want to give godly encouragement. I'm always struck at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the way Paul identifies all of these things the Lord has done in the Corinthian church when it was such a messed up church. And yet he wants to give due honor to the Lord that God had been at work in this church. So he begins by noting these things. I think you'll find, if you consider it, that most people who've influenced you, uh, who've influenced you the most, are people who believed in you. 
In an atmosphere of suspicion, men shrivel up and die. But in an atmosphere of love and encouragement, men grow and change. So I think we want to give godly encouragement if we want to see new leaders raised up. We also want to work ourselves on receiving godly criticism. Uh, There are many places we could go in this. It's it's implied in giving it, I guess. Um, Psalm 141, verse 5. David says, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. That's Psalm 141, verse 5. You know, if I am criticized by some jerk online that I block on Twitter, and I block hundreds of people, I have a ministry of blocking people on Twitter. (laughs) I don't just mute them because I want them to know that I have blocked them. If I block you on Twitter, I'm commenting on your judgment of others' motives, which is a kind of judgment that I think Scripture forbids us to. But let's say Kevin DeYoung criticizes me. Ah, well, that is a kindness, because I know Kevin loves me. And that means I want to listen carefully to Kevin uh, to try to understand what I can learn from this. There are many other places we could go in Scripture to find the importance of our reception of godly criticism I'll trust you can find those. And you also want to, of course, receive godly encouragement. Uh, We may not feel we need as much training in this, but some people are a little stoic. They don't want you to say anything positive to them, and they think that's somehow more godly. Oh, I would encourage you, if you're one of those, don't do that. Let people encourage you. Uh, don't, Don't take it wrongly. Don't let it go to your head. But do thank God for the good that he has shown you, even through that. It's important that we be able to hear honest encouragement and it really tests us how we deal with it. I love Proverbs 27, 21. that says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. It's true, isn't it? You know, trials are one kind of test, but so is prosperity. Prosperity, praise. You watch the effect of those on someone, and you'll see a whole different trial of someone's godliness. Well, that's all in this, this, under this category of feedback. Let me go on to another one. Number seven. Number six, author, uh, uh, feedback. Number seven, authority. I think if you're, particularly if you're looking for someone you want to see raised up as a leader, it's very important to understand how they feel, how they understand authority. So, for example, one very practical test. 1 Timothy 2.12 cannot be an awkward verse for them a verse that they kind of wish weren't in the Bible. No, 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, has to be a, a wonderful verse, a, a clarifying verse, a, a, a verse that is kind instruction from our Creator to help us know what He's intended for us. Uh, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable uh, because of cultural pressures. Can I, I'll, I'll just take a moment to give some godly praise to, to Kevin. His book, Men and Women in the Church, is that the name of it? Is, I think, the, the best simple intro treatment of that topic. Uh, we use it at our church widely. Uh, it's, it's clearly written with great sympathy for those who disagree with particular conclusions he has, but it's written with clarity and fairness. So if you want to think about that topic, I commend Kevin's book to you. I think especially the way we look at matters of authority uh, is 
an example or a, a test, it's an indicator of how we understand God in our own lives and how we will tend to use authority ourselves. So in 2 Corinthians 13, 10, Paul says, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Uh, Authority is given for building up. Anytime you have authority in a situation, uh, that's why you've been given it. Uh, One of my favorite passages in the Bible about this would be in 2 Samuel. It's David's last words. 2 Samuel 23. This is worth you turning there. If you have your Bible with you, 2 Samuel 23, the first four verses. 2 Samuel 23, the first four verses. Now these are the last words of David. So right there, when you begin like that, the fact that they're last words, that means they're words of special importance. They're words that perhaps when you can see, as it were, heaven clearly, you'll have a more accurate perception of the truth of matters in this life. So last words have always been highly valued. But these are not just anybody's last words. These are the last words of David. So these are going to be especially valued last words. He goes on, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So they have four lines in parallel. That is, they're saying the same thing. Uh, so David, they're just extolling David, who this great one is, whose last words are we're about to hear. And then they begin in verse two. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, All right, now David himself has given us four parallel lines where he's saying basically the same thing, that what I'm about to say, these last words of mine, are not fundamentally merely my words, but they are the words of God's own spirit. So listen very carefully. But but we're very interested now, what are those words? Here they come in the middle of verse three. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful picture. This is what he's saying a godly king is like. And this is the effect that he has. Good authority blesses those under it. Good authority causes fruitfulness to happen. So that's what we want to see in our own areas of responsibility. We want to see authority used well so that people underneath that authority are blessed. Well, there's much more we could say about this. Scripture is clear on this idea. Uh, Psalm 72, six gives us this same image. If you look over in Psalm 72, Solomon is praying for the king He says, verse 6, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Because that's what happens when you have good authority. And we all know that's true. The kids all want to go over to the home with the good parents. They, They all want to be on the team with the good coach. They all want to take the class with the good teacher, the good prof. Uh, They all want to go work at the place with the good boss. Uh, They want to go to the church with a good pastor. 
And this just happens again and again in life. As we see authority well used blesses those underneath it. We need to know that particularly for someone we're going to see raised up to be in authority. Uh, An eighth thing that I look for is someone's clarity of understanding and teaching truth, teaching doctrine. Uh, It's interesting to me that when Paul is in prison at the end of his life, that he has the presence of mind to think of Timothy, young Timothy uh, in Ephesus. Timothy is pastoring the church, and Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And in chapter 2, he says... 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So Paul is not just thinking of himself during his own final sufferings, and he's not just thinking of himself and Timothy, whom he knows and loves and is discipled, but he is thinking of those whom Timothy would disciple, and he's telling Timothy to entrust what he's told him to others. But more than that, he's thinking of still a fourth generation Because he says to Timothy, teach them what you've heard from me in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's telling Timothy, the people you should especially invest in are those who will themselves turn and teach still others. Well, that's this kind of ability to teach, to explain why. A ninth thing, a a final thing in this list of Uh, things that I've tried to do to raise up godly leaders to disciple and build a culture of discipling in our church is I want to look for and advocate for humility, Uh, an open atmosphere that's pro-humility, that's against envy and fear of man, where you rejoice in the leadership of others uh, rather than feel threatened by it, Uh, where you're careful in the kind of humor you use, Um, your spare, perhaps, in personal illustrations, lest, in my case, I would build the congregation too much around myself. Uh, When I want to build the congregation around the chief shepherd, I want to make it easier for other guys to preach and teach God's word at our church. Well, there are many more things I could say about this. I think you you get the basic idea. These are not complicated ideas. Uh, I thought these would be good things to share in a Sunday school kind of setting. And I think with that, I'm going to pray and give us time to go look at the books before the morning service. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord God, we pray for every man and woman here that knows and loves you. We thank you for the others that you've put in their lives, and we pray that you'd use them to be observant of your Spirit's work. Pray that you would today make us to be encouragers of others in the path of discipleship. We pray especially for those that you might be calling to be in positions of service and of leadership. We pray that we would be good stewards of them. We pray that the gifts that you've given to them would be obvious to us. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to see them raised up and equipped. Lord, we pray that this church would be filled with godly elders. And we pray it would be a blessing uh, to other churches here in Charlotte, Lord, uh, PCA churches, Uh, Lord, other Presbyterian churches, Lord, other Reformed churches, other Baptist churches and Anglican churches, Lord, Bible churches and non-denominational churches, we pray that you would make this church uh, continue to use it uh, as a fountain of life so that more and more people will come to know you and your glory will increase. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.